0: hope you brought a Bible with you. If you did, grab it, get it in your hands, lay it in your lap, whatever you need to. We are going to start just by looking at several passages of Scripture. They are central to the teaching of the Bible. So I want you to see them for yourself. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chair racks in front of you, beside you, behind you, whatever the case might be. Get a Bible in your hands. And you might have brought one electronically on a phone or an iPad. That's great. Just make sure you have a Bible in your hands. In some form or another, we're going to start in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. And I want you to listen very closely, very critically. Romans 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died, has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. The Apostle John would build on what the Apostle Paul was saying in his gospel. So go from Romans chapter 6 to John chapter 8 with me. John chapter 8, verse 36. These are Jesus' words recorded by John. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, we just went from the Apostle Paul to the Apostle John. We're going to go back to the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Are you seeing this central theme? We sang about it just before I came up here. It is freedom. Now we have a couple different places, in fact, three different books in the New Testament talking about this freedom that God brings to us through His Son, Jesus. Now it's a gift, a wonderful, wonderful gift. When we understand it in its entirety, there is nothing like it. But there are some warnings that go with it, like this one that the Apostle Paul would offer to the church in Galatia. Galatia, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Skipping on in that same chapter to verse 13, he writes this. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Peter would get involved in this whole discussion as well. That's how central this whole idea is to the Bible. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, Peter writes, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Freedom. It is a central idea to the whole of the Bible. So central that it sits nearly in the middle of our Bibles, right in the middle of Scripture. We find the idea in the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 118, verse 5. The psalmist writes, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me, and listen, and set me free. Freedom. Freedom. Oh, when we think about all the things that God brings to us through Jesus, we think about grace, we think about mercy, we think about peace, we think about love, we think about joy, we think about faith. Those are the words that flood to our minds when we think about the gift of God's Son, but seldom, very seldom do you sit in a room of people and ask them to make a list of gifts given to us by God through His Son, Jesus, and have somebody step forward and say, freedom. Doesn't happen very often. Trust me, I've done it a lot over the course of three decades. I could probably count on one hand the number of times that I have heard people say, freedom. Yet, here we are in the middle of a a study of promises of the Bible. Actually, we're not in the middle of it. We're right at the end of it. This is the last of the seven messages on seven promises from the Bible. And freedom is the one that I wanted to hold on to to the very end, to let it be its own exclamation point. Because, my friends, one of the great promises of Scripture
1: is that we are free.
0: Look at how it might read if we were to write it. I am free free and we are we are that freedom takes on a different look for every person yet it takes on a similarity for every person that similarity is the fact that God knew that we were going to need this so he set the idea of freedom right in the middle of scripture and then he wove it through the rest of the bible this idea of freedom is huge It is huge, almost as if God knew how much we were going to need it, almost as if God knew that it would be central to our lives. And when we talk about freedom, we can talk about freedom from sin. That's easy to do. We can talk about freedom from addiction. That's easy to do. We can talk about freedom from our past. Many of us do that. We can talk about freedom to move into the future. That is entirely practical as well and a discussion that bears having. But when we really get into talking about freedom, we may find ourselves quite surprised at what it leads to. Let me show you what I'm talking about this morning. We're going to take just a little bit of a side journey. A few years ago, a wonderful, wonderful author, counselor, psychologist, preacher in his own right, wrote a book called The Laws... Of happiness. His name is Dr. Henry Cloud. Dr. Cloud postulates that for the longest time in modern society, and particularly modern psychology, the only way that we studied happiness was from the negative. We studied it so that we could understand the things that don't make us happy, so that we could manage the negative side of happiness. He says that modern society and psychology found a number of different ways to do that very thing, to manage our unhappiness, even to the point of utilizing medication to accomplish it, as well as a lot of other tools. Now, nothing wrong with that, and you'll hear Dr. Cloud say, it's necessary for us to do that. But when he wrote this book, he was putting forward an idea that we could actually talk about happiness from the positive side. We can look at it from a whole different angle. And Dr. Cloud, because he's a Christian, because he is a preacher in his own right, would say that we can do that and we should do that because of Jesus. Now let me share with you some of the things that he has to share. I just love the way he gets started in this book. So bear with me, I'm going to read for you just a bit of his beginnings listen to what he says. My co-host on our radio show, New Life Live, lit up with enthusiasm when I pulled my mini computer out before the show one day. I am so excited, he exclaimed. I just got one of those and can't wait to use it. People tell me that what they can do is incredible. What do you mean, can't wait to use it, I ask? If you have it, why aren't you using it? Something's wrong with it, and I have an appointment to take it in. I brought it home, and it wouldn't turn on, he said, so I have to get it fixed. That's strange, I said. It's unusual for them to ship one that won't even boot up. What did you try? Well, I hit the buttons there on the bottom, and I kept trying over and over, but it never would do anything, he explained. That's so weird, I said. But why were you hitting those buttons? Those are the mouse clickers. Did you hit this one up on the corner? What is that? I didn't see that one, he said, as he peered over at my screen. "What's this, I said, as I hit the power button. The familiar blue screen came up, the sound effects chimed in, and my friend stared in amazement. What did you do, he queried. I turned it on, I replied. It works better when you do that. So what does my colleague's computer have to do with happiness? Turns out a lot. Here's what the scientific research is finding about Happiness. We are wired to experience happiness, but we keep hitting the wrong buttons in our efforts to turn happiness on. For more than a hundred years, psychology has often been interested in happiness only in its absence. The interest is focused more on our pain, hurt, depression, and anxiety. Why do we suffer and what can the doctor do about it? And as research validates, psychology has done a good job. We know how to treat depression, anxiety, addictions, and other issues as well. The results are promising, and I don't want to ignore the very real pains in life. But what about the upside of life? Is there more to life than not being depressed or unhappy? What scientific research has found is that just like computers are designed to work when properly turned on, humans are wired in such a way that when properly turned on, they get happier. Their brains begin to secrete chemicals that make them feel better. Their bodies get healthier. They make more money. Their relationships improve. Their marriages are more fulfilling. They live longer, and their overall sense of well-being and happiness gets better. And what is amazing is that we now have a lot of documentation about where the power buttons are and how to turn them on. Really intriguing stuff that he puts forward. Now, he starts out right after that, right after that, he starts out by showing us some of the negative buttons that we try to push, the wrong buttons. Look at the list that he builds. If I could just make a little more money, then I would be happy. If I could just find that special someone and get married, then I would be happy. If I could get that promotion, then I would be happy. If I could find or could finally own a home, then I would be happy. If I could move and live in a different city, then I would be happy. If I could get that new fill-in-the-blank, then I would be happy. If I could lose 20 pounds, then I would be happy. If I were beautiful, I would be happy. If I were rich, then I would be happy. Now, Dr. Cloud says of all of these things, as well as the rest of the list that we could all build for ourselves, every one of us could add to that list. He says that those are all external circumstances. And Dr. Cloud says that external circumstances do not have the inherent power to make us happy. He goes on to say that the reason for that is external happiness never lasts. But I love his third theory about these external happinesses. Take a look at this. When we are pursuing the things that don't have the power to make us happy, we are ignoring the ones that do. We're pushing all the wrong buttons. We are pushing all the wrong buttons. And in many ways, we're just staying stuck right where we're at. So when the Bible is talking about freedom the way it is, It is talking about what God designed for us to experience, which is true happiness. True happiness is found in purpose. True happiness is found in identification. True happiness is found in relationship. True happiness is found in Jesus. And freedom in Christ leads us to that place. Freedom in Christ gets us to a place where we can experience what God designed us to experience. Dr. Cloud goes on in his book to list out what he refers to as the 13 laws of happiness. His last one is quite intriguing. Take a look. Happy people have faith. Now, he studied this for years and years and years and years and years. So when he came to this conclusion, and this is his last point, that happy people have faith, he didn't just arrive there easily. He has research backing it up. And in this book, he cites one study after another to show us how this is true. Happy people have faith. You might say, I know a lot of unhappy people that have faith. I know a lot of depressed people that have faith. I know a lot of anxious people that have faith. I know a lot of people that desire happiness but have never found it that would call themselves people of faith. Well, it might do us well and them to ask what type of faith they have. Now I want you to let that soak in for just a second. It might do us well and them to ask what kind of faith they have. If you ask that question, you may find that there's a simple shift that needs to happen in order for them to experience freedom that leads to happiness. Here's what I mean by that. A lot of people will tell us that God is there. That is their belief. Looks just like this. God is there. If they were to describe their faith, That's how they would do it. I believe that God is there. I believe that God is all around us. I believe that God is sitting on his throne in heaven and he is watching everything that's happening, including my life. God is there. And as a result of that, they would say that they have faith. We might even say they have faith. But that is not a faith that has unlocked the freedom that the Bible is talking about. That is not a faith that is living in this freedom that God promises us. The type of freedom that allows us to say, I am free. That type of faith requires this tiny little shift in this statement. It would look like this. God is there for me. You see the difference? God is there versus God is there for me. When we get to a place that we can personalize faith like this, freedom is right around the corner. It's coming. It's coming fast. When we recognize the personal aspect of who Jesus is and what He brings to us, the fact that we can have relationship with God through Him, it minimizes the hurts in life, it maximizes the joys, and it pushes us into the place of freedom. Dr. Cloud would cite a lot of different scripture, but as I read through his book, and I've done it a couple different times, I don't ever remember him using this passage, though he could have. I want to show you someone that figured this out in the Bible, and maybe, just maybe, you can put yourself in the midst of the story. Join me in John chapter 9, will you? John chapter 9. Gospel of John. Chapter 9. We'll start in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. By the way, in that one verse where Jesus speaks, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, that first sentence that is in red, when Jesus said those words, he was dispelling a popular myth of those days. That things like blindness or any physical affliction was a direct result of sin, either that of the person or of their parents. Jesus just put that to rest. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, "'Where is he?' He said, "'I do not know.'" They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, "'He put mud on my eyes and washed, and I see.'" Some of the Pharisees said, "'This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath.'" But others said, "'How can a man who is a sinner do such signs?' And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, "'What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes?' He said, "'He is a prophet.' The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, "'Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see?' His parents answered, "'We know that this is our son and that he was born blind.'" But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We do not know, or we know that this man is a sinner. I'm sorry. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> I like that question. And they or er, reviled him, saying, you are his disciple? he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, for those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. There is a ton of teaching in this chapter. A ton of teaching. All kinds of different things that we could bog down on, not the least of which is, why did Jesus spit in the the dust and make mud? What in the world? And why did this man choose to allow him to put that on his eyes? Why would anyone do that? We could look at the gross side. We could look at it a little deeper at what he was teaching about sin, the fact that Physical ailments are not a direct result of sin, not of ours or of our parents. It's not heritage that is passed on to us. We could spend time with that. We could look at this issue of the Pharisees and how they would come against Jesus in this situation, even on the Sabbath, trying to use an Old Testament law to trap Him. We could spend time with that. I don't want to. I want us to spend time this morning just looking at the freedom that this man experienced. And I want us to see how he did it. He moved from being someone who would say, Jesus is there, to being able to say, Jesus is there for me. And when he could make statements like that, when he could believe that, freedom came to rest on him. It's the most powerful part of this whole account. It's incredible. And you see it in his personal progression of belief. Did you see it? Did you catch that? There are three stages to it. Let me walk you back through them. After Jesus had spit on the ground and this man had received his sight, when he was first questioned about what had happened, he made this statement about Jesus. Verse 11, he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. At that moment, what is the terminology that this now-seeing, ex-blind man would use to describe Jesus? He was the man. That's how he was describing him. But very quickly, that will change. We'll skip on down to verse 17. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. So we start out with him making this declaration, he is a man, and now we have him saying he is a prophet. Things are happening for him very quickly. Boy, are his eyes ever opened. He is moving very fast through doctrine. He is moving very fast into relationship with Jesus now that his eyes have been opened. As we progress on, we find him making another declaration. Let's go to... Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now, all of a sudden, he is looking at Jesus, knowing that he is staring directly at the Son of God. By the way, in your Bible, there's a footnote connotation next to son of man. If you were to look down into the footnotes, you would see that some translations say son of God. Some say son of man, some say son of God. Neither is wrong. It is an issue of preference and in interpretation that causes that. So some translators say son of man, other translators say son of God. They are the same. So here's the progression this man has gone through. Once his eyes were opened, he saw Jesus for the first time as a man. Quickly, he saw him as a prophet, and now he sees him as the Son of God. That's freedom. And he worshipped him. His entire life changed. His entire life changed. Still works that way for us. As we progress into a place where we understand exactly who Jesus is, our eyes get opened. Things change within us, even happiness, because now we're finding our happiness in Christ, free of everything else. Our happiness is in Christ, free from addiction, free from our past, free from sin, free to look into the future knowing that it doesn't end in this life and it certainly doesn't end in hell because of Jesus It ends in the presence of God. Real happiness comes to rest on us. We find a new measure for everything that we face in life when we get to the place that we can worship Him as the Son of God. And we get there when we are willing to say that it is no longer just a matter of Jesus is there and we can say Jesus is there for me. He touches me. And He brings freedom. He brings freedom. From whatever that is, He brings freedom. In whatever capacity we need Him, He brings freedom. As long as you hold on to Him solely as a man, that freedom will remain elusive. You'll stay stuck. If you believe that He's only a prophet, a great teacher, that freedom will remain elusive and you'll stay stuck. But if you get to the place where you can acknowledge He is the Son of God, and you worship Him as such, freedom comes to rest on you. Changes everything. Changes everything. It's a promise central to the Bible. And one of the things that this man in John chapter 9 figured out so beautifully was that he needed to change the question In order to get the answers that he needed he needed to change the question now let me explain what I'm talking about four different times in John chapter 9 the Pharisees would ask the question how how did this happen they wanted to know the answer to this question how you were blind no one that has been born blind up to now in history had ever had their eyes opened. They had never had their sight restored. So this was a miracle that was just beyond their imagination. It was beyond their comprehension. So they wanted to know how, how'd he do it? How'd he do it? Can you imagine if this guy had said, he's in the dirt. And He mixed it together and he made some mud and he put it on my eyes and he told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam and I went and I washed and the minute I put that water up and I scraped that stuff off my eyes, I could see. Can you imagine what they would have said if he'd have given them that description? That's right, you're no longer blind, you're loony. we got to do something about this. He didn't answer that question in the practical. And in the process of that, he helps us understand something. We get way too concerned about the mechanics of a miracle rather than allowing ourselves to be ultimately concerned with the author of the miracle. We want to know the how. We want to know the intricate details of how everything happens. That's what they were asking. They went so far as to go to his parents and ask that question. That's, That's really one of my favorite parts of the whole story. They went to his parents. Now, you know him, right? That's your son, Right? he was born blind or have we been duped all these years when he's been begging out here and we've walked by him every day, was he really blind? And the parents said, that is our son and yes, he was born blind. But because they were afraid of getting kicked out of the synagogue, that's as far as they were comfortable in going. So they said, you got to ask him anything else. We will verify those two things. That's our boy and he was born blind. Past that, We're not willing to go any further. He's of age. you got to talk to him. And they did. Again, they came back and said, how, 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 how? Boy, don't we do the same thing? We want to know how all the time. How can God do that? How can Jesus take a sinner and, and turn them into a saint? How can God take somebody that was so hateful to everyone around them and turn them into a loving person? How? How can God take somebody that was controlled by the world and now get them into a place where they are controlled by the Spirit? How can God do it? How can God do it? Well, it's simple. Through His Son. And when a person believes that Jesus is the Son of God and they worship Him as such, freedom, freedom comes to rest on them. That's the answer to the how. All the other details are immaterial. So that means that we have to change our question. The one that we have that's in front of us all the time, because we're human, we want it answered, the how question. If we will just rearrange the letters, the question will take on a whole different meaning. Let me show you what I'm talking about. We'll take the word how, rearrange the letters, we'll be asking the right question. It's who. It's not how. It is who. And the answer to that question is Jesus. It's Jesus. I love how this man answers this question. He does it in freedom. It is so powerful. Here it is, verse 25 of chapter 9. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, That though I was blind, now I see. And it's because of him. From there, he goes into preaching one of the most powerful sermons in all of the New Testament. It's personal, it's practical, and it's all about freedom. This man is the preacher of freedom in John 9. Here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. Folks, if you were going to preach that simple message, what's yours sound like? This is what I know. This is who I was. Fill in your blank. And here's who I am today. Finish the sentence. What's it sound like? What's it sound like? That's a message of freedom. This is who I was. This is who I am. And it's all because of Jesus. It's about the who, the author. You might want to write that in the margin of your bible so that you can come back to it sometime just your simple question how do i preach this how do i preach this one verse verse 25 how do you preach it because we all do if we're christians we all do how do you preach it job would say it like this job chapter 42 verse 5 i'm going to give you just a second to find that old testament book it's a powerful one I want you to see it. This is what I would refer to as an anchor point passage. It's one that you should memorize. It's one that you should be able to go back to on a regular basis. It's a testimony verse. Job chapter 42, verse 5. Job says, I had heard of you. By the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. That's a testimony verse. God is there. God is there for me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Folks, from the moment that first happens, we are undone. We are undone. What I mean by that is your life will never be the same. You are undone in Christ, led into a place of great freedom. I hope you've experienced it. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for freedom. Thank you for knowing how much we need it. Thank you for making it possible for us. And thank you, Lord, for leaving some responsibility on us. I pray that we'll take it seriously. But I pray that we'll experience great freedom unto eternal happiness with you. This morning, Lord, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses that have been undone by your mercy. But I know that there are some that are still wrapped up in hurts, habits, hang-ups, pains of the past, pains of the present. I'm praying for them today, Lord. Would you help unwrap them that they might be undone in you? It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.